The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, On the Other Side of the Knife, inside a plastic surgeon, and more. We all need to face the question, how do we treat our bodies? Do we honor and nurture them, or do we exploit and hurt them, and why? Is plastic surgery an act of self-love, or an endless quest for something unachievable, or even self-destructive? Have we driven our bodies to prove something about ourselves? Our guest is Dr. Carol Holland, a plastic surgeon with over 30 years' experience. Joining her will be your husband, Bob Hediger, a man paralyzed since 21, who has driven his body to be a hero and has paid a big price for it. This show applies to all of us. Stay tuned. Feel free to call in with your questions. And now let's hear from your host, Beth Green, from the Inside Out. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to be back with you today. I hope we have a whole bunch of people listening to us live because I'm sure that lots of you are going to want to ask questions to Bob and Carol, and you'll say, oh, darn, I wish I had been listening on Tuesday at 3 o'clock and I'd been able to call in. But before we hear from them, I'd like to share uh, some thoughts about what we're going to be talking about. You know, we're we're really talking about how our, how we treat our bodies, and plastic surgery or working uh, overworking ourselves uh, to be heroes, those are just two examples of the way that we use our bodies in order to fulfill some agenda. Now, I would like to share from the gate that plastic surgery has really saved me. I have had a tremendous amount of skin cancer on my face. Well, I have had it all over my body, but I've had at least 18 surgeries on my face alone. And I mean big ones, big chunks of my forehead gone, big piece of my lip taken out and all of that because I, you know, I have one of those bodies, okay? So, and if it weren't for some extremely talented and dedicated uh, surgeons who worked hard and, you know, and were willing to do this work, uh, I wouldn't have a face, let's put it that way, or it would be even more scarred than it is now. So um, I'm very grateful. So I just want to start out with that. But that doesn't mean that we can't look at uh, sometimes we overdo it. And why are we overdoing it? And, and what's the motive behind that? And I have a perspective on that. And our, our wonderful guest, Carol Holland, has a perspective on that too as a doctor. And of course, we're not always going to agree, nor should we. You know, She has her perspective. I have mine. James has his and uh, Bob has his own. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say is that I really want to acknowledge. And I want to tell you that these particular people, these surgeons, were so kind to me and so dedicated because I, was, I had very difficult problems. I had a very difficult body. I had one doctor sit with me for eight hours doing surgery on my face. 
having sending it to the lab, sending it back. I had, you know, he was coming to me all over the place. And he canceled everybody else and he just sat with me and he uh he didn't charge me a dime. So I mean it really makes me want to cry that uh, the, how how much kindness there really is in the world. But I'm also concerned with our obsessiveness about beauty and what we will do in order to uh make ourselves fit some concept. Uh, when I was uh, 16 years old, uh, my parents offered me a nose job because I have a Jewish nose. And it's like, hello, I have a nose. I really didn't need the job. And I want to tell you something. Barbara Streisand changed my life because she got on television with her nose. <laughs> and I said, see, look at that nose. Nothing wrong with it. I have a Jewish nose. And there's, so there's, there are things that go on in our heads about how we are supposed to look. Um, and it's an interesting thing to explore. It's like, why are we so driven to look beautiful? But see, it really goes way beyond that. Now, this is something that I'm embarrassed to tell you, which is that after all these years of being a spiritual teacher and an intuitive counselor, I still trash my body too. I don't do it for beauty. I mean, I would never put on high heel shoes or tight clothes or other things that women do to themselves. Uh, I don't shave. I will not do anything that makes me uncomfortable. Um, but what I do do is I overwork. Now, you tell me that that's any different. See, I can sit there and say, what is wrong with this woman? I mean, she is, looks perfectly beautiful and she has to have a facelift. I, you know, what's wrong with her nose? What's wrong with her chin? I don't see anything. But I'm going to go and I'm going to work way longer hours than I should because I feel driven by some other agenda which has to do with saving the world or healing people or whatever it is. Just today, I did it again. I knew I was tired. I knew I should just go to bed and rest. Uh, I have tremendous health problems. I've told you before. I wanted to do that before the show, but I'm out there helping because I didn't know how to say no. Now, that's me. See, that's my ego. I'm always pushing, pushing, pushing my body. So there are so many ways in which we can trash our bodies for some agenda that's in our heads. Now, to be perfectly honest, there are times when we do have to push our bodies. You know, there's the mom who's dragging herself over to the crib because the baby really, really needs her. But She's, she has to be very careful. At some point, she has to say, look, the baby has to wait because I have to rest. But there are times when we have to push ourselves. There are deadlines that are real and so on. But when we make it a habit to push our bodies because of something that's in our minds about who we think we need to be, how important we are to the world, uh, how we're supposed to look, you know, it's, it's an obsession. It's kind of sick. Do you know what I'm saying? And then I know a lot of people who drink coffee or do other things to uh, keep their bodies going. And uh, then they become addicted to substances and then they're going up and then they're going down and <laughs> in order to perform. And of course, when there's money at stake, oh my God, we have so many excuses to hurt our bodies. 
Because you say, oh, well, I just have to do it or I'll get fired and I had to work around the clock and I have to do this in order to get a raise and I have to do this in order to get promoted and I have to do this in order to be seen and I have to do this in order to go on TV or to do the part or whatever it is, is have to, have to. And are we listening to our bodies? Are, are we taking our bodies even into consideration? Do we have a conversation with our bodies? Are we really ready to have another child uh, you know, when we've just had one or when we're getting old or when we had a really tough time last time? I think we just alienate our bodies. We don't even consider them. Now, I'd like to just take a look at that for a moment, which is why do we do that? You know what? One, one of the thoughts that I have um, that has come to me in the past is that our bodies never lie and we don't like that. Our bodies are telling us all the time how we're feeling, how we're doing, let's say our stomachs are churning, we're really upset, we feel anxious, uh, we really don't want to do something, the body's telling us. We really don't want to be in this relationship, we don't want to sleep with this guy, uh, our bodies are telling us, and, and we shut them up, we overeat, we pump them up, we suppress them, we take pills, we do, because we don't want to hear what they have to say. They get in the way. So I think that's one thing. And I think another thing that comes up for us around our bodies is they make us so darned vulnerable. One of my guests today, Bob Hedeker, you know, he was in an, an accident and he became, you know, paralyzed at the, uh, I think just before he was 21 or around the age of 21. And, uh, you know, it didn't take much. And sometimes Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and you can't put it back together again. So there's something about that vulnerability that our bodies show us that we're not super women or men, that we can't just do anything, that we have limitations and that we are vulnerable. I don't think we like that. So with no further ado, I am going to invite two wonderful, lovely people to join us on the air Uh Dr. Carol Holland, and Bob Hedeker. So would you say hello to our audience? Hello, this is Bob Hedeker. Okay, Dr. Holland, may I call you Carol? Please do. Carol is one of the angels who was a great plastic surgeon who helped me when I was in trouble, uh, many times when I was in trouble. And uh, I just can't tell you how much I owe her for the kindness that she uh, she bestowed upon me. So, Carol, oh, and I really want to encourage you guys out there in the audience to be thinking of questions. You can email me. Uh, in a few minutes, uh, we're going to be announcing the phone number over here. We want you to call if you possibly can. Don't be shy. So, um, Carol, what is your what is your take on well let me ask you first why did you become a plastic surgeon I think that I had grown up in a household where beauty was talked about not about each each other's 
personal beauty particularly, though we would be told you're a pretty little girl or, oh, your sister has such beautiful long hair or something like that, like all children. But my mother, I think, was driven to have a beautiful home despite having any money and to have uh, children that were um, uh, well-behaved and dressed well and, you know, spoke well and all of this because of her upbringing. She came from a home of 13 children in the rural south where everybody worked in the fields, and oh, she got my. to raise most of the young ones and mm-hmm. uh, lost her own youth and um, some of her uh, youthful innocence in the experience of living where she did and um, never thought that she would probably get out of there except that she was smart. Mm-hmm. And her sister was a very, very beautiful young woman, and my mother was appealing, but not beautiful in the classical way. Mm-hmm. So for her, being beautiful was very important. Being pretty was very important. And she made our house, despite it being a, a small, um, inexpensive house, to be like a dollhouse. It was lovely. It was not overdone or anything, but her attention was there. And I always grew up with that there was a high value to beauty because she would discuss things in, in that context of something being beautiful. So that may have given me an interest in looking at how she suffered because she wasn't the pretty one. She was the smart one. Not well, that that's can, a bad deal. <laughs> no, no, but can I, can I ask you something about that, Carol? Sure. Uh, you're, you're, um, you are from the South, right? Alabama. Alabama, okay, and your mother was also from the South. Yes, she now, was born in there. There, at yeah. that time, when your mom uh, was growing up, was there a belief um, that if you were beautiful, you would find a man, and that man would bring you out of poverty? Uh, yes. And, and do my you mother think- was much more interested in being educated. She was the only one of the thirteen children that completed high school and, and went to college. And um, she didn't get married until she was 35 years old. Mm. So she was uh, different. She was trying to break out of that context, that, that way of life. Oh, that is so interesting. So she carried both of those energies in her at the same time. One yeah. of them is, you know, in order to find status in society, you need to be beautiful. And the other is... You should be smart and go to school and not get married. That's right. <laughs> that, <laughs> and you can see why she got kind of twisted around later on. Well, I, I absolutely, and I don't know. You know, this may be a stereotype, so please forgive me if I'm stereotyping. But um, I, I think for so many of us who watched movies or whatever about the South, you know, we, the idea of the Southern Belle. Uh, is as a stereotype that came to us, and that beauty was really important uh, in that society to kind of move up in status. So, uh, was, is there any reality to that stereotype? Well, inside the status of the home, her youngest, her two younger sisters were very pretty, mm-hmm. and she was. My mother ended up as an adult, looking very, very lovely, and 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 probably as pretty as they did. They gained a lot of weight and all sorts of issues. But, mm-hmm. but she um, was never thought to be the, 
the, the pretty one. She was the smart one, and she was the one that raised the kids. So she wasn't given any acknowledgement for anything aesthetic. Mm-hmm. She right. herself was an artist, however. So she would draw pictures of pretty things. Well, let, let me just come back to this point because we're coming uh, very quickly towards our first commercial break. And uh, during that time, uh, we're also going to be announcing the phone number. But one thing that's striking me about this, Carol, is how much beauty for women has been a means of making a living. Because I know, forget about the South, I know how many clients I've had who are beautiful women who married men who are way above them in station, you know, from where they came from or in education or in power and so on. And that uh, being beautiful for them became uh, like uh, what you did for a living. What she did for a living was she was constantly worrying about her looks. And I mean, I've seen this over and over and over. And so, um, you know, in societies where that's the case, then our looks becomes a, become a means of making a living. And isn't that really connected to the, the way we feel about our bodies altogether, where we were the, where the, we're the ones who are picking cotton in the field, or we are the ones uh, you know, who are driving our bodies and uh, to stay up too many hours because we want to be in this business breakfast and this business lunch. Do you know, all of us, whether men or or women are using our bodies for money, and that's just a reality. I mean, in a in a way, when you think about it, the guys who went out there in the cave days and were out there trying to, you know, uh, uh, get a buffalo or whatever it was that they were doing, uh, they were using their bodies to make a living too. So I I think so much of our survival uh, is tied up with uh, having to use our bodies. So I'd love you to be uh, thinking about that and uh, address that question when we come back. And maybe, Bob, I'll also introduce you because I'd love this to become a three-way conversation. Uh, But before that, let's hear from Voice America. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, bethgreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel.
You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Hi, so glad to have you back. So I'd like to uh, immediately bring back uh, our guests today, uh, Carol Holland and Bob Hedeker. And we just started scratching the surface of the question of how we uh, treat our bodies. And we're talking about plastic surgery, but we're talking about the, really the bigger context because this is about all of us. So, uh, Bob, uh, from a man's perspective, you know, uh, what, what do you think about the, the issue about how we trash our bodies for money? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think in my point, it was trying to get higher on the uh, the ladder of prosperity, you know, trying to show that, uh, especially after I was injured, it was trying to show that I was as good as or better than any able-bodied person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it was important to know that, you know, I would go the extra mile, and uh, in this case, uh, I guess I guess sailing to Hawaii in a race with an all-disabled crew uh, shows how committed I was to <laughs> to tra- <laughs> you know to trashing my body, but getting you know up on the, yeah getting kudos and up on the ladder. <laughs> oh my God! Well, would you explain to our listeners how tough that was for you? Well, you know, I had no idea. You know, I, the longest I had been on a boat, sailing a boat, was uh, maybe a day and a half. Well, first, and, I mean, I think it's important for people to understand that not only are you paralyzed, but you're also in constant pain. So that they oh, have right. a context, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, so, so please okay, there's, yeah, that is my context. And I have, uh, at that time, too, I had a, uh, an open sore on my, uh, my butt, which, uh, if I was sane in the moment, I would have probably said I shouldn't go. But mm-hmm. there were so many, so many things uh, impinging on, uh, on that decision, like uh, my commitment and... Uh, you know, and and this one one of a lifetime. You know, this this thing that came together after so many years, and you know how it took it on its life of its own. Mm-hmm. I you know I really felt like I had no decision when I did go. Mm. So it's a uh, it's about a twenty five. You know, it's a, it's it's a long ways. It took us thirteen hours and I mean thirteen days and five hours, and. Uh, you know, we I had to be sitting down for a very long time, and uh, everybody on the crew was either sick or you know, and they're all disabled. Mm. So uh, you know, and they got more disabled as <laughs> as we <laughs> sailed on. <laughs> oh, jeez. And you know, and it, it it did. I mean, it came and I go. Why am I doing this? You know, that was the the major question of of each morning and each night. And you know, there were times I couldn't. At all, I've never sailed the boat without any light at all. And you know, some nights there would be a cloud cover, and we'd be uh, in 20 knots of wind and with heavy seas and 
couldn't see at all. Couldn't see the front of the boat. And we have this big sail up front, you know, called a spinnaker. And uh, you just have to predict where the boat's going to go, and it uh, it just drives you crazy. It makes you insane. By the time I got there, I I had blisters on all my fingertips, you know, just from moving the wheel back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, right, and this is on top of the pain you already have. And this was on top of the pain I already had, and, and trying to move around while I'm doing all this, and mm-hmm. and you know, having balance, and and not and being so sleep deprived, you know, thinking I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to fall asleep, and then we're going to have something bad happen. So it was. Uh, God, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it did sound like fun at first, but yeah, once you got into it. <laughs> well, there was and, a reason and, they didn't sail it back. <laughs> well, you know, coming uh, coming back to what you said and how this all ties together, is, is you know, you were saying this, this the, the need to push yourself to prove that you were as good as any able-bodied person, I think really hits this core piece that I'm bringing out here, which is we think our survival is at stake. Right. Because if you don't prove to the able-bodied world as though the the rest of the world was that able-bodied, by the way. <laughs> but if you don't prove to the able-bodied world that you are just as good, then you will not get the job. And in fact, that if you're not, don't prove that you're better. Uh, you're not going to get the job and you won't make the money. It's like you won't bring home the meat uh, for us women that we won't bring home the guy. And, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it just becomes a survival issue for so many of us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and we petitioned for for killing ourselves, you know, basically, you know, we almost did for 12 years because they kept saying, no, you guys shouldn't go. Right. You know, and that, you know, just made us want to go more. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Which had nothing to do with looking at our bodies. Right, right, right. Uh, so, Carol, when do you find yourself having to say to a you know, a potential client, no. Several Christmas circumstances. One, if they're doing it for their husband, their boyfriend, or somebody else. Absolutely no. Number two. Well, well why is that? Because I'm operating on their body, not their boyfriend's, husband's, or employer's body. So it has to be something that I can actually have some sense that I get to know the person and know that they ex- they understand the real risks and options and possible outcomes and that they can be a partner mm-hmm. to me because I don't want to be doing work that that may have a problem that we have to work together on as partners to get healed with. You know, the surgery is my job, but the healing process is her body um, what she does postoperatively, some of the complications occur because of bleeding, et cetera, that I'm, I'm accountable for and all of that. But we have to be partners. And I also have to realize that the person is realistic. If they bring me a picture of Ava Gabor or somebody, Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor or some present-time beautiful woman. And say right, they right, like right. That. For our audience, they may not know who Ava Gabor and Elizabeth Taylor are. <laughs> they were the beauty queens of their time, yes. of our you, time. Please and continue. that's who probably the, the older women would bring me pictures of. The younger ones might bring me 
uh, breast pictures, because it's usually breast dogs they're doing, um, from the Internet. And I'll have to say, beautiful breasts, but you can't have those. You can have a different kind of beautiful breast because your breast is different, but you can't have that. So it's a big conversation about what is possible and what's not possible. And I need to have a partnership with them, too. And I tell them that sometimes things don't work out quite the way we intend them, and we may have to do something else, and you have to be my partner. And if they say, well, does that cost me extra money? And I say, just for the OR and anesthesia, but I'm your partner, so I don't charge. But that is important because if I don't have a partner, then I'm, um, uh, I can't trust them to even do the postoperative things they need to do, mm-hmm. you know, to pre- protect what we've invested in together. Mm-hmm. And there are people who simply have unfulfillable expectations. Mm-hmm. And that would be someone coming in and saying they want to be as beautiful as this movie star or as their sister. They mm-hmm. can only be as beautiful as they are, and there may be some distraction we can fix. And that is something like, you know, uh, puffy eyelids or something or a neck that's gotten lax. Those are manageable and fixable things, but you don't change your essential essence and how you look. Mm-hmm. Well, have you noticed a lot of changes over the years in what women are actually wanting to look like? Actually, I think the main thing I'm seeing is people are more realistic. Mm. And that may be because they have more friends that have actually had surgery. And they're seeing some real work, you know, done. It's not just movie stars. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So it's it's a little bit easier to um, explain realistic outcomes and show photos of realistic outcomes and show spectrum of only patients. I don't show movie stars' bodies. You know, they need mm-hmm. to see what what's possible. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I think the conversation also has been out in the public in some of the magazines more so too. So mm-hmm. they're a little bit better educated. Mm-hmm. about what's possible and what could go wrong. And I always talk about those things. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have to fight with a client and uh, uh, and say no? Uh, it's not hard to say no. Um, and it, it, it's hard sometimes to get them to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, stop saying that. But I can usually hang on to that no, unless they come up with an idea I hadn't thought of that might work for them. But mm-hmm. I, I can easily say no. One of the things that strikes me about uh, women and fashion being kind of fickle, I know that once you've changed your nose, for instance, you can't change it, or I don't. most people aren't going to go out and change it again. And uh, my Aunt Hilda, and this is in the dark ages, right? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, can't even imagine, uh, you know, she would have been, oh, I don't know, 90 now. 90-something, you know, she had had a nose job. Again, these are dirt poor people, dirt poor, you know, barely able to survive. And my Aunt Hilda had a nose job, and um, she got this real perky nose. And what I was thinking about is that, you know, that that people have different icons of what beauty even looks like at different ages, and then they're trying so desperately to fit that image and that the image could change on them. 
and that they have, they have changed their bodies to fit in. And, you know, she ended up with this real perky nose, which I'm not going to say looked good or bad. You know, I shouldn't be judging it, but it was... It wasn't you know, what you would have suggested. <laughs> no, no, it, it 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 it's not. And you know, just just the other day, I, uh, I was thinking about how much we do to our bodies in order to create some image, so that women are supposed to look not like men, so that the fashion standard could be large breasts and large hips because that's the opposite of what men look like. And men are supposed to look like not women, and so they're supposed to have these big muscular chests and whatever it is that they're slender hips. And those are images. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sure. And they're really based not on what women are and what men are, but trying not to look like not a woman not looking like a man and a man not looking like a woman. And the and this is, I mean, in all kinds of societies, you know, look at belly dancing, how that exaggerates the hips and the breasts and all of that. Push your boobs up. You don't have to do surgery to mangle your body. You know what I mean? Just stick, stick on a bra. And um, what, uh, you know what, uh, suddenly it occurred to me because, you know, in the earlier years when the aristocrats were around, they weren't trying to look not like men or not like women. They were trying to look like not peasants. <laughs> right. Right? That's, so that's right. The, the women... I think that was my mom's story. Not, not oh, going to be off, right off the farm anymore. That, oh, yes. That is probably absolutely right. So those women were supposed to be thin, will, willowy, not necessarily have big breasts, and, you know, cutting out your, uh, the ribs so you'd have a smaller <laughs> waist... And uh, not, uh, you know, ever going outside so you, you, you know, your skin looks soft. And th- that extremely unhealthy, which is, by the way, my body type. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I am extremely unhealthy. Anyway, that extremely unhealthy thing, that's what women were supposed to look like. And men were not supposed to look macho. Men were supposed to look like not peasants either. So they had very feminine qualities. They were, quote, fops and they wore... You know, uh, what are the wigs and uh, handkerchiefs and spoke in a very effete manner and so on because the big thing that they didn't want to be was peasants. And we can just see how we, we're not asking our bodies what's best for you, what do you need, what kind of body type do you have, and, you know, what weight should you be. It's the same thing with dieting or Whatever it is that we're, or fattening up a woman so it makes you look uh, wealthy in some societies and making women look thin so they look like aristocrats. Whatever it is we're doing is we don't consult our bodies, do we? Mm, No. Probably not. Probably (laughs) not. (laughs) I I think we do more so now than we ever have Mm -hmm. because this conversation is so many options for people. There's uh, so much. Uh, information about how to be healthy, about exercising, yeah. what kind of exercising is dangerous for you. Um, so I think we're, we have a little bit better set of data around for people just to pick up at the drugstore even. Yeah. Yes, so that's... There's hope in that respect. And I don't have patients asking me for something that's really ridiculous for them usually. I mean, those are pretty... You can spot those right off. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are people you wouldn't want to operate on anyway, because if they came with that consideration, they're not going to be rational, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't see much of that that 
stuff going on now. But, but it all, you know, to me, it always bothers me when people who are perfectly healthy put chemicals in their bodies to make, I know, you know, we probably have a disagreement here, but to make their lips look bigger or whatever. And I always think, what are you doing to your body? What are you doing to your body? How do you know how this is going to impact your body? Uh, why are you putting botulism toxins in your forehead when you don't have botulism and, or you don't really need to? So from my perspective, especially having such a delicate body as I do and having had such poor health, it's like, what are you doing to yourself? And I see the same thing oh, you know, about how we eat and how men uh, you know, are doing risky kinds of uh, behaviors, athletic behaviors uh, that put their bodies at risk and that they're going to pay a price. And, and I, I think that you know, something that we're awakening to is sports you know, sports injuries we're actually talking about. Uh, Brain injuries in football? Yes. Yeah, it, and it's really all part of the same way of, you know, do we honor our bodies and partner with them or we, do we just try to use them for a purpose? James, would you please uh, give our phone number? Sure. Uh, you can call us if you have a question or a comment at one 866 Four seven two five seven nine five. That's one eight sixty six four seventy two fifty seven ninety five. Please call us. Thank you so much. And uh, now we will go to a commercial break, and uh, we'll be back. Visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Okay, welcome back. And uh, I know some of you are going to be listening to this podcast and saying, oh, I wish I had listened live and I could call in. But we have a, we have a question right here from James Maynard. Yes, yes. Uh, Carol, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, 
what's it like for you when you've done plastic surgery for a patient, you've knocked yourself out to give them the very best outcome, and then they're still not satisfied, they didn't live up to their expectations, and they're blaming you. Uh, how, do you how does that make you feel, and how do you deal with that? I spend a lot of time and energy ex- telling people what can happen and what, what the variations and outcomes are. But I also realize that we have um, expectations that are hard to communicate with people, and sometimes they're unfulfillable. And I really welcome it when somebody you know, tells me exactly what they want, and I say, well, I can't do that. So <laughs> that's not going to be something we're going to be doing. Um, and I often will bring up things beforehand to try to prevent that that, you know, if you really wanted a little nose, you can't have one because your face is big and, you know, your airway, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. You know, I give them the reasons. So, um, but the question is, how does it make me feel? It makes me, I put a lot of myself into this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and a lot of my ego power is there, of course. If people are happy, I'm thrilled and I go home happy. If someone comes in dissatisfied, or particularly angry, I kind of get sort of angry myself inside but don't express it. But I come back home feeling very diminished if I don't have what I would consider a satisfactory outcome as far as the patient's appreciation. So um, that's one of the most um, difficult parts of this is trying to match the, the reality to expectations. Yes, that's so wonderful for you to talk about because most of us who go to doctors don't think about what it's like to be on the other side of the knife. Uh, We have two callers, I'm happy to say. Uh, Let's first hear from Todd from San Diego. Hi. Hi, Hi, Todd. (laughs) I um, had a question for Carol, and it's regarding, I know you were talking about this a little bit, but I wanted to just hear more about how you decide who to work with because um, you talked about, you know, that you have to have a feeling that there's, there's going to be a partnership. But I'm wondering, you know, what else goes through your mind as you're deciding, do I want to work with this person or not? And do you, you know, what is your, do you turn away people and ha- how have you done that and what's that process like? Well, yes, I do. But it's not as often as one might expect. I think the selection process and from the get-go when they call in to make an appointment. Sometimes some people will self-select themselves out when they discover some of the things that they're told there. But um, how do I feel? I always feel uh, accountable and responsible when in cases, many cases, I'm not. So that's an unnecessary pain I put myself in. Um, I often want to explain to, to patients what happened or what what they're seeing that um, they may not like. And sometimes that's receivable, but sometimes they're just agitated and want to complain. Or perhaps something's happened at home, like um, their husbands or boyfriends or wives or, you know, didn't, didn't notice something that they didn't even notice, and now they're coming in protecting themselves that way. But most of the time, it's just unfulfilled expectations, and then I have to double-check myself to see, did I explain everything well? Did I show them enough pictures of variations? Did I, um, you know, how can I have make it so that someone actually hears what I say? Yeah. That is probably the hardest thing. Because yes. I, I know in myself, if I go to a doctor's office, I'm asked beautiful questions, and I'm a doctor. And then I come away not remembering anything said, <laughs> unless it's 
<laughs> I love that. And Carol, before the show, we were chatting, and uh, you were also talking about how very often people are—they think they want to fix their nose, but they really want to fix their marriage. We right. have another caller, uh, which is Helen from California. Hello, Helen. Thank Hi. you, Todd. By the way, excuse me. I should have said thank you, Todd, for that wonderful question. Welcome, Helen. Hi. Uh, I want to say first that Carol has also performed plastic surgery on people that I know, and most recently my niece, who had a large brown mole growing off the front of her nose, and she did an incredibly beautiful job. And, you know, that I have mixed feelings about cosmetic plastic surgery in that case, I did not have any mixed feelings about it, but I wonder, Carol, if if you have had mixed feelings about being a cosmetic plastic surgeon and if you sometimes find it emotionally and spiritually challenging to integrate that, um, you know, superficial beautification process with your spiritual beliefs. Well, that's certainly a straightforward question. Um, I think that I have on occasion, but not as much as one might think, because uh, let me see if I can come up with a because. (laughs) (laughs) Because actually I enjoy so much having an intimate relationship with my patients, and it is intimate. And I, I think that mainly what I'm getting at when I talk to them is, is an agreement uh, that what we're going to do has a limited possibility um, and is not high risk of anything really bad happening. And, um, and, and it usually is very uh, a light experience for people. They're, they're delighted. Something's been lifted off of them that they were carrying. I mean, they wouldn't come to me if it hadn't bothered them. Now, there are also some people who, who are perseverate about something that is not of concern, you know, really, that I can't fix or that's not going to make a whit of difference in their appearance in some way, except they're stuck on it, um, or that it looks like their mother whom they hated or something like that. You know, I can't fix those things, and that's totally something I can't do. Um, I don't know if I've answered the question or wandered. Did I? Helen? Did you, uh, are you still with us? Maybe not. Did I? Well, yeah. Helen, did you, uh, are you still with us? Yes. Was Pardon? that a yes, you're still with us, or a yes, you answered the question? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if you answered the question. I, I think you, you've said the reasons why you find it rewarding. So it's, it's, it's not nearly as much fun, for example, as it is when I deal with a breast reconstruction after mastectomy and the person is just dancing up and down. That's a joy. And that may not even look the best as it could possibly look, but they're delighted. So they have received something to fix something that, they, that was every day in their face and made them sad. And that, that's a different story than the person who has... Um, a, a minor thing that is in the realm of, of normal, and um, and they want it changed, and they change it, and they may uh, be happy about it, but not not you know it's not as transformative or is not not as important, and so it 
the little things that could be distractions from its results uh, will become big things where it won't be on a breast reconstruction. I may see something I don't like, but the patient says, I don't care. I've got a breast. You know, mm-hmm. that's a different story. Mm-hmm. So Thank you, you for that excellent question, Helen. I really appreciate it. I think that what I'd like to get into as we're coming, believe it or not, closer to the end, um, we have some time to talk about the pain of it. Um, I think that Helen is trying to also talk about that aspect of it. I mean, isn't it also painful, not maybe on, for, for, you know, always on the health level, that we are so obsessed with the way we look that we don't love ourselves enough, that we don't feel good about ourselves? I, I mean, I, I can't imagine wanting, well, no, I can imagine wanting to not have wrinkles, but I don't want to go to, to care about that because I want to care enough about me to feel that it's okay to look old. And, um, you know, I wonder if either of you, Bob or Carol, would care to talk about maybe some of the painful side because like Bob was sharing about what he did, but he didn't actually talk about the pain of it. Uh, so if either of you feels moved to talk about that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I, I think uh, for me, uh, when I was injured, it was, I really I realized I was in another group or uh, almost, you know, I could feel the caste system that we all live in, you know, mm-hmm. the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I was now at the very bottom. Mm. And I knew that. I mean, I growing up, I didn't see anybody like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I knew uh, I knew they were there, and Where were they and happy? they were closeted, you know, somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody was uh, raving about them. Nobody was saying that's the way to go. You know, they were they were around but not seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really scary to be put into that group. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of pain for me in whether I was going to be accepted by my own group. In fact, there was so much pain and fear that I didn't connect with my old group right away. Mm. My old friends, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the able-bodied people. I connected with my new friends, you know, my new group, the uh, disabled. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, there was, uh, you know, I think that's what started my activism too, that, there was so much we could do. You know, at the time there weren't curb cuts and, you know, the architecture of all the buildings. There was no, mm-hmm. there was no bathroom you could get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, uh, the whole world seemed not to accommodate anybody like me. Mm-hmm. So I could see the need for a lot of changes, and so did a lot of other people, too. And we didn't know how it was going to happen, but... Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we kept working for it, and, you know, I, I became an activist for a lot of things, including, uh, you know, getting people out on boats. You know, we've, we've had over tens of thousands of people now, you know, through through just buying one, two disabled guys buying one boat. You know, we formed organizations that, uh, you know, are duplicated around the world. And, uh, that, you know, that's incredible, Bob. Yeah, uh, you know, I'd like to add something to that because, uh, you know, because I'm have been chronically ill, I've all, ill. I've also been disabled, and I would not always be able to 
I still can't always stand up or walk across a room without sort of stumbling. And the in the discomfort that I feel when people are looking at me because women aren't supposed to look like that. And so I, I really understand that pain. What about you, Carol, as we're winding down our show? Is there some pain for you about having been a plastic surgeon that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'd like to twist it around a little bit. The pain that I okay. have... I, if you don't mind, the pain that I have is that I'm not as doing as much with my plastic surgery skills in the domain that I most enjoy as I used to do, and that is dealing with the children with cleft lips and palates and congenital anomalies in other countries. And mm-hmm. we have n- numerous organizations, the Plastic Surgery Society, doing that, and we used to go to Mexico all the time. I did regularly and operate on those kids. And if I could do nothing else, that's what I would do. If I could choose one thing to do, that's what I would do. So this conversation right now has made me feel more active in that domain. So thank you. Well, yes. Oh, thank you. You see, I think that, you know, it's so interesting that we have war and so many things that have come out of the military have ended up helping everybody. And it's the same thing. Uh, the skills that can be used sometimes for what I would consider to be ego-based stuff has also been developed to help people who really desperately need it and, and, and the kind of life-changing things that plastic surgery can do. Yes. So I really appreciate um, you know, what you both have shared and your sincerity, and the time has just flown by. For We're- goodness sakes. <laughs> Where did it go? I don't know. Okay. Uh, James, would you like to share with our listeners what's coming up next? And then I'll come back and say goodbye to our guests. Our next edition of Inside Out will be Honesty or Dumping. Which is it? When are we being honest and when are we dumping, venting, or blaming others? Can we always tell the difference? Let's ask Dr. Brad Blanton whose book, Radical Honesty, was a national bestseller and who has authored seven more books on the theme. What is radical honesty? How is it different from dumping? How can it change our lives and our world? If you want support being honest with yourself or others, if you're struggling with someone who is abusive but claims to be honest, if you want to stop covering up the truth of your past or present, tune in. Join this lively discussion about honesty, self-honesty, and its impact on our relationships and our world. Join well, us next week. Call in or email a question. Go ahead. I can't wait for us to get to that show. And I have so enjoyed this one. It has flown by. I deeply want to thank Bob Hedeker and Dr. Carol Holland for being inside out with us today. Until next time, this is Beth Green. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.